This is EM Pulse with your hosts, Julia Magana and Sarah Medeiros. Pay attention. Welcome back to EM Pulse. This is the final episode in our series on women in emergency medicine. If you haven't heard the other three episodes, that's okay. You can always go back and listen after you're done with this one. If you didn't catch our drift before, this series is really targeted towards the leaders and men of emergency medicine. Glad you like it if you're a woman, but come on, you already knew a lot of this. This podcast in particular is meant for the person who has women physician colleagues, is a leader in a department with women physicians, is married to a woman physician, is a parent to a woman physician, or if you know a woman physician. Does that (laughs) apply to you? (laughs) No matter how you identify, we can all advocate for our women colleagues. At the end of this podcast, you will have actionable ways to advocate for that woman physician in your life. For this episode, we interviewed three people with three different perspectives. First off, and maybe most revealing, is Dr. Nick Gordon. You may recognize him from our podcast, LGBTQIMD. He is an emergency medicine physician at Sutter Hospital in Davis, and he is a primary health care provider at Lion Martin Health Services in San Francisco. Yeah, and Dr. Gordon is a vocal supporter of women physicians, both on social media and as a speaker. You might remember from his previous interview that he trained as a woman and then transitioned to male as an attending physician. His unique perspective allows us to explore the role of someone who has lived both roles. So powerful. What are some lessons that you've learned in terms of the challenges that face women physicians in EM? So I sort of have a historical idea of what that was because I transitioned in 2003, a year after I started my first job as an attending. And so I saw a lot of the problems as a woman physician And then when I transitioned, I realized, oh, wow, there's so much more than you could ever possibly imagine. Because when you get to the other side, you you can see the difference more. So while there's there's definitely huge issues with the wage gap, with academic advancement for women physicians, the day-to-day stuff is really significant. And I think I think women physicians get used to it and they just sort of, you know, let it kind of flow water off a duck's back. But there are a lot of microaggressions from patients, from colleagues, from other staff that you work with. Each individual thing may be tiny, but it's a huge thing in total, and it just sort of grinds down on you. How do you now consider yourself a male ally? What are some, what are some other tips you might have for other men out there to, to be allies to their women colleagues? I think the biggest tip is pay attention. The big advantage that I have in being a male ally is I see it writ large, right? Because I've practiced as a female physician, I practice as a male physician. And so the things that had I only ever practiced as a male physician that I wouldn't necessarily notice are really obvious to me. You know, you, you can't, fix a problem until you find the problem. So you really have to pay attention and think about the way that uh, your colleagues, patients, residents, medical students, nurses, everybody interacts with your female colleagues and how that is different from how they interact with you. And then when you see it, 
do something, say something. Saying something is hard, but let me tell you, it's a lot harder saying something as a woman physician than it is saying the same thing as a male physician, right? So the ask is that you do something significantly less risky for you personally and significantly less difficult. You know, if you're a man calling out sexism and misogyny is not as risky for you, so you should do it. There's a lot of little ways to do this, though I think the the way that's most effective for me and that's been the most effective is to sort of have a man-to-man talk with the person involved in it. And I say man-to-man, sometimes the people that are perpetrating those microaggressions are women too, right? But uh, especially with guys, because there's a bit of cluelessness there, taking other men aside and saying, hey, you know, this is why that's not cool. And it's important to say the thing is not cool, not you are not cool, right? Because nobody wants to admit they're sexist or racist or homophobic. But if you say to somebody that thing that you said came across as sexist or racist or homophobic or whatever, that falls a little bit better. The best way to present it is to say, look, you may not have realized this, and I'm pretty sure you're a good guy, so this isn't your intention, but that thing that you said, this is how I perceived it, and I think this is how other people perceived it. So maybe let's change next time. What kind of things do you think could happen on like a departmental level or health systems level to improve this situation? Again, I think the first thing is finding the problem and finding the problem as a guy. You know, if you're a male leader in an ED department, it is your job. And in fact, it is a big job that you have to look and see how there may be a difference between the way women physicians versus men physicians are compensated, advanced in their career, treated by co-faculty or staff or residents or medical students. It's your job to, when you see resident or med student evaluations of attendings, to say, okay, this person may have gotten some negative responses from medical students and residents, but how much of that negative response is based in sexism? I don't think I changed that much when I transitioned, right? But the same things that I did pre-transition that were seen as aggressive or bitchy or inappropriate as a male physician, oh, I'm just being assertive and a strong advocate for my patients. That's the thing that amazed me most, how my actions are perceived by others just based on transitioning from female to male. I mean, one one example that always comes to mind for me is if you're a female physician, patients expect you to do the physician job, but to also do the nursing job and sometimes the social work job. For example, if you're a woman physician and a patient asks you for a blanket and you give them the blanket, you don't really get cred for that. You just gave them a blanket, right? If you're a male physician and you give a patient a blanket, you are so caring and so nice, and your press gainies are going to be great for that interaction, for giving somebody a blanket. But on the contrary, if you're a woman physician and someone asks for a blanket and you say, okay, I'll have your nurse bring you one, you are an unfeeling bitch. You don't care about your patients. Your press gainies just tanked. 
If you're a male physician, you say that, okay, sure, I'll wait for the nurse to bring it to me. It's an expectation that female physicians have to do more and better and be more caring just to get up to that male baseline. And that extends beyond patient interactions. It extends to every interaction. You know, when you're doing a procedure, I always clean up my sharps. That's just, you have to do that. And if you don't, you're a bad person and you should be punished. But I don't clean everything up. When I was practicing as a woman, I was messy and dirty and left work for the nurses. As a male physician, I get thanked for cleaning up my sharps. It's, it's ridiculous. Any final thoughts on, on being a male ally the way forward? I think it's important that, and this just doesn't apply to being a male ally. This is a white ally, a straight ally, a cisgender ally, all of those things. Pay attention because you're not seeing it. Everything that you think that you see, there's 10 things that you don't see. And if you don't pay attention, you're not going to find the problem. But I will tell you, if you do pay attention and you start seeing these things, they become so obvious and it makes you feel like you have to intervene if you're a good person, right? If you see it, you will feel bound and obligated to do something to change it. Wow, Sarah, that was a really unique opportunity. I'm so glad that we are able to learn from Nick. Yeah, I realized as we were talking that there really are so many little microaggressions that I pretty much ignore on a daily basis. And sometimes I question whether these things really are because of my gender or if I'm making it up or I'm being too sensitive. It was fascinating to hear his perspective on how he is treated differently now that he's practicing as a male physician. I completely agree. There is bias in the workplace, and we all need to be a little more intentional. On that intentional note, I spoke with Dr. Alden Landry. He is an emergency medicine physician at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center, and he is the Assistant Dean for Diversity and Inclusion and Community Partnership at Harvard Medical School. He is a renowned leader and mentor to many physicians, so he has many practical tips on how to be an intentional ally. What does it actually mean to be a male ally to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And I know we're tossing around this term a lot more these days, allyship, co-conspirators, things along those lines. And I think a lot of that is buzzwords that we're using. And I think the reality is helping all people to do what's best for their personal and professional growth regardless of what will make you different than that individual, whether it is your race, whether it is your ethnicity, uh, your sexual orientation, your gender identity, things along those lines. There are amazingly talented people in the specialty of medicine across the board, in particular emergency medicine. I love EM docs, but we have some amazingly talented individuals who, for whatever reason, have not had opportunities like others. And being an ally, being a co-conspirator is really being fair, and helping people to grow. And that's what I sort of envision myself in this space. You know, people, you'll see their hashtags or, or they're put in their Twitter handles, you know, hashtag ally. It's not something that you can claim. It's something that others must bestow on you. And I think that my colleagues who are women or who uh, have a different sexual orientation than I or who maybe have a different race than I, who see me as a mentor and a sponsor would also call me an ally, but that is something that they have bestowed on me as a title, not something that I can claim myself because 
you can go out and claim a lot of things, but are you actually doing the work and are you actually being just and are you being fair and are you being supportive? And that's the real question. And so for me, it's when others tell me I'm an ally, that means I'm doing my job. When others are saying that they are allies, I question, are you really or do you just like the title? Tell us how you have done the work. How have you earned that title? What are things that others can do? Well, I think the biggest thing is listening. Um, One of the things that I do when I try and mentor, whether it's students, trainees, faculty, whether they're in my specialty or other specialties, is to listen. And I think part of that is to get an understanding of who an individual is, what their career goals are, and then figure out where they need assistance. Because oftentimes, I have ideas, I have thoughts, I have recommendations. But if I don't know that individual, if I don't have an understanding of who they are, then my support for them may be off-centered. And so how can I better understand them as an individual before I jump into my spiel of this is the advice I would give you? And so I think listening is number one. Secondly, thinking about the individual and the whole aspect of who they are. It's not just about the work that they do, but what's their family life like? What is their personal goals? What are their professional goals? What is their background, their education? What are their experiences? What do they like to do? whether that's inside of work or outside of work. And when you have a full understanding of who that individual is, you can better offer support, mentorship, and sponsorship. And then lastly, I often think about when I'm in positions of power, who's not in the room. And this is something that I have the ability to think about with some of the committees that I sit on or with some of the organizations that I work with. It's not uncommon for you to see the same people in the room, very homogenous group. And so I look around and I see who's not there and think about who can we bring into that space that can offer a different opinion or a different lived experience or a different perspective on life because I recognize that that different perspective may offer value to the group that we're a part of. A lot of what you're describing sounds like mentorship. You mentioned some other terms, sponsorship, um, and then, of course, we've been talking about allyship. How do you differentiate between those three buckets? Allyship is what we're discussing here, but allyship is sort of the more common language of being a supporter, being an advocate, but not necessarily um, having that same personal relationship that may happen with a mentor or a sponsor. I think mentorship is something that we are commonly used to hearing about more in these discussions. And mentorship is really that individual relationship where not only are you offering advice, but you're offering it from a perspective of knowing that individual personally, right? And I think that's what separates it from just pure advising. You know the person as an individual and you want to support their career through strategic recommendations based off of what you know about them. Sponsorship is the area that we really need to dive into more because sponsorship is really what opens the doors for people more so than mentorship. Sponsorship is when you're in that room and that person isn't in the room and you say, this person should be in the room. This person should be considered for this role. This person would be the best at doing this job. That is true sponsorship. And the person who's being sponsored doesn't even know that these things are happening oftentimes, but they know that their name was dropped in a room that led to them being successful, led to them getting an offer, led to them having something to move forward from a professional standpoint. I think sponsorship is partly how I got to where I am today. And if there's one thing that I can do is continue to sponsor other people as well as mentor and advise and be an ally. But sponsorship is something that's really key in these roles. So you are coming from a senior position. How do you identify 
and actualize that? Like, how do you find out who needs those roles and specifically for women in emergency medicine? One of the best things uh, about being in the role that I am is that people reach out to me. And oftentimes it's for a specific issue or a question about a fellowship or an opportunity that they became aware of and they want to learn more information. And it's during that time I build a rapport with that individual where I get to know them a little bit more. And as I'm hearing what their proposed career trajectory is, that's when I have the opportunity to think, okay, maybe this person would be good for this or that. And then over time, as I get to know that individual, I use my knowledge of them, my understanding of their growth the direction that they want their career to go, to think about where could they be next. And if I'm ever in a position where I've identified someone through my mentorship of that individual, where I can flip into that sponsorship role, I always take advantage of those opportunities. What about if you're starting off in emergency medicine, if you identify as a male and you are starting your career, what are things that you can do if you're not necessarily a mentor level yet? I think there's lots of simple things that we as men can be doing to support our women colleagues, our female colleagues in emergency medicine. Like one of the things that I do, especially when I'm working with trainees is uh, when I walk into the room, especially if I'm going in with a resident is address them by doctor. And I do that in front of the nurses and in front of the patients. And that helps to elevate them to that doctor role, which they've earned and they deserve. And I do this for men and for women. But I think it's especially important to do it for the women because we know of all the bias that happens with a woman walking into a room being perceived as another role. It happens to me as a black man walking into a room and being perceived as a role other than the doctor. And so part of my conscious decision, and now it's an unconscious or subconscious decision because I do it so often, is by calling people doctor, I know that I'm elevating them to the role that they've earned, they deserve, and making sure that they have the respect that they deserve from everybody in the room. Secondly, and again, it goes back to that concept of listening. When you are working with your colleagues, listen to them, be respectful, eye contact. And when a good idea is presented to support that idea, not to take it as your own, whether it's a management of a patient or management in the office setting or in a committee meeting, you know, making sure that if one of my women colleagues makes a, a, a strong comment, acknowledging that comment, knowing that it came from her so that her voice gets elevated, especially if it gets overlooked by my male colleagues in the room. And so that's something that you can easily do. And then lastly, when you're doing work, and you know, I come from this from an academic perspective, there's often times where there's need for collaboration. There's need for making sure that there's a robust group contributing to a research project or a committee effort or a quality assurance project and making sure that all voices are included, that you have diverse individuals in the room and making sure that from a leadership perspective, women have the same representation on a panel that I'm putting together. They have the same representation on a committee that I'm putting together so that their voice can be heard and we can elevate them to assume a position that is often not granted to them because of the way we typically have approached uh, selecting individuals for positions in the past. Well, what about really big picture? How do you help your own department, your own hospital system to be an ally for all of our colleagues, but specifically today for women in emergency medicine? I think it's important for us to think about data when you ask that question. Making sure we are looking at the data because there can be assumptions made all the time. Oh, everyone gets paid the same. You know, we have pay equity. But have you looked at the pay? 
Everyone has shift equity, but have you actually analyzed and looked at the shifts? Everyone has opportunities for professional growth. Well, how are you actually selecting who gets hired for those leadership positions? And then dashboarding all of this. Is it plain? Is it visible? Is it open? And if you are dashboarding this, and if you are showing, yes, there is a disparity, we have a difference in the pay that our women colleagues make compared to the men in the, in the group. We dashboard it, and then we address it, right? And we talk about how we address it. We be open about it. If there's issues related to hiring where you have large cohort of women working in the workforce, but none of them in that senior level, why is that? What's the hiring problem that's happening there? Because it's not that women aren't qualified, and it's not that women aren't applying. We're not hiring them. So the real question is, what do we do to make a better, fair, just hiring process so that our women colleagues have the same opportunities as men? And then lastly, from a leadership perspective, what is the vision that we are communicating as leaders? What is the mission that we're communicating? And does what we say on paper in these well-worded mission and vision statements actually translate into our practice? And if not, how do we fix that? And I think that's really where the area that we need to be thinking about. People get uncomfortable with sharing data and people like to keep things sort of behind the scenes. But we know it's not like, you know, you can hide a lot of these things. And so we see, you know, oh, our female colleagues are working more weekend shifts than, than our male colleagues. We can see that, right? We may not have the granular data, but we can see it playing out. Or, you know, we see who is the vice chairs or who gets appointed to the committees within a hospital that actually come with financial compensation versus those who get appointed to committees that are volunteer work. We see that. And so we may not know the exact numbers, but we can sense that. And so the real question is, will the leadership take responsibility to take it from an assumption that people may feel to actually documenting where we are at? And if there aren't any disparities, that's great. The institution, the department is doing a great job. But if there are, what processes, what steps are you taking? Be open, be forthright, and share the data. Show what the work is being done to fix any problems that you've identified. I think that's what everybody was looking for. Transparency, honesty, and fairness. And we just have to make sure that we are doing all three of those. Any last tips that you think we need to know about being a male ally? I would just go back to one of the first things that I said, which is really just listening to your colleagues, especially if you're in a position of leadership, you're in a position of authority. There's so many people with a lot of great talents uh, that are being underutilized, undersupported, and it's the job of all leaders to cultivate talent, and talent doesn't always look like you. It's not that you're looking to make a carbon copy of yourself, a 2.0 version of yourself. You're looking to identify people who have the talents to get the job done even if they do it differently or if they look different than you or if their religion is different than you or their sexual orientation is different than yours or your gender identity is different than yours. It's okay that someone can be different than you and they are not, you know, they have the same academic pedigree. They can get the job done. They could do it well. That's what leaders should be looking for, who they can uh, build up to be into that next level. Really cool. I think we need to have him back. Right? I loved his definitions of allyship, sponsorship, and mentorship. It is helpful for me to think about it that way, and he gave me a few ways to think how I can do more of that for women in our department. Most of my mentorship has been with residents, but I think it needs to be a little more intentional for the others in my department. 
Yeah, I imagine it is infinitely easier to find potential leaders in people who look like you with a similar voice, but we lose out on the possibility of being better when we narrow who can come to the table. You know, one of our colleagues recently called that affiliative leadership, and that really sums that concept up well. Another theme that consistently came up throughout this series is child rearing. What is our dual role as mom and physician? So when I heard Dr. Jeremy Toffel speak, I was super excited because he was speaking as a dad and a physician and where those roles intersect instead of just as a mom and physician. I know you came home from the conference excited about his perspective. So let's hear it. Jeremy, I am so excited to have you here with us today. Let's go ahead for our listeners. Introduce yourself. Who are you and what do you do? Yeah, so my name is Dr. Jeremy Toffel. I am a general pediatrician in Omaha, Nebraska. So I work outpatient peds, which has been a joy for, gosh, I'm trying to think how long I've been doing it now, eight or nine years. So that's been that's been really cool. And you are also a podcast host, right? Tell us about your podcast. Yeah, so I run a podcast. It's called The Imperfect Dad MD Podcast, um, basically looking at the imperfections of parenthood, but mainly from the dad side of it. Um, and I really kind of just try to focus on Mainly physician dads um, and how we are trying to do better at home. You know, that we're kind of, I always talk about this generational gap of what is a mom, what is a dad, what is our theoretical roles at home. And that's obviously shifted in the last 20, 30 years in terms of how you define a mom and dad. And I think as dads, sometimes it's hard to know what that means for us. So I try to explore that through my own life experiences, interviewing other dads and experts and those kind of things. And that's, that's really what I focus on. That's amazing and actually is a great segue into what we're going to talk about today, being a male physician and how can we advocate for our female counterparts, for our colleagues here. Let's start off with what do you think it means to be a male ally? Yeah, I think being a male ally is important because, you know, like I said, we are in this time period where you know, male and female physicians, our, our roles are definitely shifting in terms of what's the expectations at home and which expectations in different areas. And I'm sure you guys have a lot of people who discuss, you know, gender disparities when it comes to pay and expectations at work and those kind of things. Um, but being a male ally is important because if you're not recognizing those differences, you're not doing part of your job. And so I think as a male ally, it's important to recognize that there are differences between what male physicians go through and what female physicians go through in terms of be it work life, home life, or anything in between. And if you're choosing not to recognize that, you're not doing a good job for your coworkers. And so I think the biggest part of being a male ally is just really recognize that there are differences. And there's actually a lot of things you can do about it to help with that. So let's talk about what are some of those differences what have studies shown on the differences between being a male and a female physician and how that impacts our, our lives? There's actually quite a few studies out there. I was surprised when I started searching for this. Many of the ones I found came from Canada, so I don't know if they're just ahead of the game on searching for these things. <laughs> but um, yeah, I found several articles looking at you know the male and female physicians and specifically looking at parenting. You know, that's my focus that I look at for podcasting. Every study showed very similar results. And now these results were all pre-COVID. And I actually found another study that was released in November post-COVID, which was even more shocking. But pre-COVID, looking at things like expectations at home for the female and the male providers, 
male providers tended to not have as many obligations at home when you compared it to female providers. More commonly, female providers had over twice the amount of expectations in terms of time and hours at home as the male providers who were physicians, regardless of what their spouse did. Female physicians almost always had at least twice as much time at home compared to males. And that's big because you're talking about, you know, how do you spend your time and where do you focus your time at? And even in studies that show male providers and female providers working pretty much the same hours at work, female providers still had significantly higher expectations at home for what they were doing on the day-to-day basis in terms of, you know, taking care of things at the house, taking care of kids, taking kids to activities. And so um, that's a big thing to know because, you know, for me, I know when I get done with work, I like to just go home and relax and that's not always an option for people. And I think it's important to understand that because those types of expectations really plays into a lot of other areas, be it mental health, be it, you know, the ability to take care of yourself outside of work. And looking at those studies really helps understand that better. Other studies looked at the difference between male and female physicians. And there was one that was really interesting to me. The title of it was Gender and the Balance of Parenting and Professional Life Among Gynecological Subspecialists. This was done by Emily Hill, MD, uh, and it was released back in 2019 of September, basically looking at female and male gynecological subspecialists and kind of how their lives difference in terms of parenting choices and those kind of things. And it was really just kind of shocking looking at the percentages. So 42% of the men had three or more children at home compared to 20% of women. Now, they didn't get into, was that your personal choice before being a doctor or what was your you know family planning? But just seeing that basically twice the amount of men interviewed had three or more children compared to the women physicians, you say, okay, is that due to the fact that maybe these women didn't have as much time to make those specific choices for their home life? And when you keep going through the percentages, you can see some of that. 37% of the women stated their career plans affected their decision on being a parent, whereas 23% of the men said that. But a bigger number, 83% of women reported career plans affect the timing of becoming a parent compared to 48% of men. I mean, I know for myself, we had our first child as a resident and my wife was working then, but she did a great job helping out at home. I don't know how people do residency and kids when you have two residents as male and female spouses, because I don't know where my time would have gone. So I was obviously very lucky that my wife was able to do a lot of that. But as a male, I have to understand that that's not the same for everybody, and especially for female physicians. Even if they are the primary person working, they still had a lot of higher expectations at home in terms of the parenting side compared to male physicians. Those are just some really important numbers to look at because once you start to see them and understand them, you know that you know it's easy to look at work and say, well, I'm a physician, you're a physician, we're going through the exact same situations, so we should be having the same you know, kind of discussions and same expectations, but it's really not. It's really different. And especially when you still look at those differences between males and females. Jeremy, how do you recommend then that knowing this data, this gap in responsibilities and impacting how we have kids and when we have kids, how can we shift our thinking and our approach? One of the things we can do as male providers is number one, understand, is understand that there are these differences and being open to having there be changes in things like shifts and work hours and having to miss work and things like that. You know, one of the interesting things I I had kind of mentioned this was with COVID, you know, this article that came out in November and the JAMA network was looking at the difference between male and female physicians in the COVID era, six months into it. And they did a study and a survey on these people. And 
during that time, female physicians had a higher chance of being the ones who had to miss work, had to reduce their hours compared to male physicians during that time. And a lot of that was due to kids being out of school and out of programs. And that's a big thing in terms of understanding. Um, and I think as a male provider, it's important to understand that because, I mean, I know for me, I'm a pediatrician. I mainly work with female physicians in my office. We have a lot of physicians that are female that are moms and they work part time. And, you know, not everybody gets that opportunity to do that. And so I think when somebody approaches you and asks about doing part-time or taking time off or adjusting hours, I think we have to keep that open mind about it because it sometimes is hard to think about what's going on at home when we're really just focused on work. And when we see a team member come up to us and say, hey, I really got to adjust my hours because I got some stuff going on at home. Sometimes it's hard to say, oh, okay, yeah, let's make that change for you. Sometimes we want to question things. And I think sometimes we just have to have that mindset saying, you know what, I don't know what this person's going through, but I understand that for some people, this is a lot harder. And we need to be open to making those changes for whomever on the team needs that kind of change. What about in our home life for those physicians that are married to another physician or just kind of reframing how they think about it? What tips do you have for those male physicians? Yeah, I think as a male physician, the first thing you have to ask yourself is, am I doing enough at home? You know, a lot of us were raised with parents who had a very defined dad role and a very defined mom role, which would, if you want to say from the traditional sense, dad worked and mom stayed at home. And that was kind of how my family was growing up. Now, some of the younger doctors may not have experienced that, may have been part of a little bit of that kind of that gender generational shift in terms of mom and dad. But I think some of us still follow the same patterns that our parents did. And so I think the first question, if you're a male provider, and even if your spouse is not a female physician or a female provider, you have to stop and ask yourself, am I doing enough? What am I doing at home? Not just for myself, but for my spouse and for my kids. Our kids are learning from us every single day, everything we do. And just like we mimic our parents, eventually our kids are going to mimic us. And if you want your kids to grow up to be not just strong, loving parents, but also understand the sense of what it means to be a team with their spouse or significant other when they're older, now's the time to start modeling those behaviors. So the first question you have to say is, am I doing the right thing? Now, it may be, take more than just asking yourself, am I doing the right thing? You may have to ask your spouse too, hey, am I doing enough? <laughs> you may not like the answer that comes out of that because we may think we're doing enough, but maybe you aren't. And I, I know I've had those discussions with my wife. And even though she made a decision to stay home, I have to recognize there's still a lot of stuff I do specifically at home to help out. I don't just leave it on her to do everything. And periodically, I will be told, hey, you got to step it up a little bit here at home. And I have to just recognize that, hey, yeah, maybe I am slacking off here a little bit. And so um, that's the first thing. Look at yourself. Ask yourself, am I doing enough? So as a male physician parent, where is some low-hanging fruit where we can ask ourselves, am I doing enough in this area? Or I can just immediately step it up and, and help out in that gap ask yourself, number one, am I present? Because we all know routines are hard to change. And so if my routine is I walk in the door, I put my stuff down, and I automatically go straight to the computer, or I automatically go to do some charts, or I automatically hop on my phone to check my emails, and it, your automatic is not, hey, I check in with my family and see how my kid's day was at school, or hey, how's my wife doing, and does she need any help right now, or those types of things. That's an easy thing to change. Now, I say easy because it's easy to recognize, not always easy to make the changes right away 
it, again, it's that routine shift that you have to change things a little bit that way. So I do think that's one thing. Another kind of low-hanging fruit as a parent, I think, especially as a dad, is being part of your kids' lives. And being part of your kids' life, I'm not just talking, just sitting there and, you know, talking to them at the end of the day, but being a part of what they're interested in. For me as a dad, I have tried coaching my kids in sports I'm not familiar with, which sometimes goes okay. Luckily, they're young, so it doesn't matter if I'm teaching them the wrong things. <laughs> um, I was a soccer and a hockey player, and neither of my kids are interested in those things. So <laughs> basketball and baseball it is right now. So but that's one thing is, is showing interest in that and showing that you care about what they're doing. I think it's important to recognize, you know, what are your kids interested in and how are you helping with that? Because not only then are you helping make that relationship with your kids, but you're also the one then who is the primary role caretaker for that specific activity. Instead of it being, say, mom's job to take them to every practice and every sport and every after school activity. Hey, now this is you. This is your job. This is you get to take him and do this. And don't look at it as, say, a job. Look at it, you know, you say to yourself easily, I get to do this. If you frequently say, I have to do this, it feels like I don't really want to do it, but I'm going to do it. So you say, I have to take my kids to soccer practice. That feels not as pleasant. But if you say, I get to take my kids to soccer practice, I mean, just that one word changes the whole feeling of the phrase. And I think that's something we can do is, how are you thinking about these specific situations and what can you just change some little thing to make it feel better because obviously if something feels better we're more likely to do it anything else you think we need to know about being a male ally especially as being a physician male dad as a male physician and a male ally if you are married to a you know a female provider in any sense recognize you know what these studies do show and recognize what the time is that they put in to the family and taking care of the kids and those kind of things. Now, it's possible your spouse may be completely all for this. They That was always their dream was to be, you know, super mom or whatever it is. And if, and if that's the case, that's great. But you have to make sure that they know that you appreciate it. Sometimes we forget to appreciate the people that are around us. And that's, you know, at work as well, appreciating the coworkers and, and the people that help you there. But at home, we forget to appreciate one another. And so I think, if anything else, make sure you appreciate them. Make sure they know you appreciate them. But also just make sure that you are there to help if that help is definitely needed. And if you don't even know the help is needed or not, make sure you're asking. Pulse check. Pay attention. Pay attention to the way you and everyone around you addresses and interacts with your women colleagues. If you see something, Say something. This may feel uncomfortable, but if it is for you, think how much harder it is for the person on the other end of the microaggression. Identify women with potential and sponsor them. Move from a well-crafted mission statement to actuation by tracking, documenting, and sharing advancement, compensation, and opportunities. You can't just look at a colleague and say, you're a physician and I'm a physician, so we're going through the same thing. It is different. Ask yourself or your spouse, am I doing enough at home? Be understanding when your colleagues request flexibility for family-related issues. Talk a little and listen a lot. Let us know your tips on how to be an ally for women in emergency medicine. Hit us up at Impulse Podcast. Okay, well, that's it for women in emergency medicine. Phew! <laughs> that was a lot to cover, but honestly, there is even more we could talk about on this subject. 
We hope this series is a tool for your own journey to explore how gender impacts your role in emergency medicine. Consider sharing this series with your colleagues, your partners, your parents. Consider sharing it with anyone. It can at least be a conversation starter. Thank you to all the male allies in our department. And thank you to OM Audio Productions for being my own personal male ally. And now back to your regularly scheduled Ian Pulse podcasts. (laughs) 